Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank all the people who have reviewed and rated our podcast. Today's review comes from Girl Life Empowerment. Here's what she has to say. Absolutely love all the nuggets of wisdom provided in this podcast. Keep up the incredible work. Thank you so much, Girl Life Empowerment. We will. We appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes. Anne Lowe is a serial entrepreneur, author, and cancer advocate. After her own cancer diagnosis in 2014, Anne, who spent several decades as a surgical assistant to a glycoma specialist, realized how little she knew about the cancer journey, even with her vast medical background. This raised a question in her mind. If I found the experience difficult, what must it be like to have no medical background and receive a cancer diagnosis? This question was the impetus for her to pen, holy crap, I have cancer, now what? What to expect when you weren't expecting? A book that assists patients who are newly diagnosed with cancer through their treatment and into survivorship. And I'm so excited we are finally doing this. <laughs> I am too. I'm just so excited. And I'll let the audience know that Anne and I have had the great fortune to meet in person. So I know her a little bit, but as I was saying before I hit record, I actually don't know very much about your cancer journey. So I would like you to take us back to the beginning. Tell us what happened. Okay. So, um, I have, I have dense breasts and a family history of cancer. And so, you know, I was, I was annually having mammograms and um, and it, and it required an ultrasound as well because they, I was fairly well endowed. And so they were very dense and, uh, the, the radiologist found just a, a little, a little spot. And he said, listen, um, you know, it's 90%. It is just calcium. You know, you're, you're that age. I wouldn't be worried about it, but I think we should biopsy it. So then when I went in for the biopsy, He's like, you know what? I wouldn't be worried at all if I were you. Less than 10% of these are actually cancer. Don't worry about it. And of course, um, the biopsy was on a Friday. And they said, well, it's going to be about seven to 10 days. So we go through the first week. And then Monday of the next week, I had to take my father-in-law. So one of the things I did was uh, I was a caregiver for my mom and my two in-laws who were in their 90s at the time. And uh, he and I had to go to a six o'clock in the morning appointment for his heart. And we were on our way home. And one of the things that I always made sure is that I wasn't ever on my phone when I ever had any of them with me, because that was my opportunity to get to speak with them and learn things about them. And so I just didn't do it. But when my phone rang, I could see that it was my my vaginecologist. (laughs) And so... (laughs) So I answered it 
And um, she and she and I were were good friends as well because our kids were the same age. And so uh, I answered the phone and and she said, um, you know, I I wanted I want to tell you something. And I said, well, I know it has to be good news. And she said, no, I'm sorry, it, it's it's breast cancer. But she says it's a small spot. Don't worry about it. I'll you know I'm going to send you to the surgeon that I love. And so I go to the surgeon, I fall in love with him immediately. And he said, you know, you, you have incredibly dense breasts, let's do an MRI. Um, and he said, you know, there's some pathology that we're waiting to come back. And he goes, you know, we want it to be, uh, you know, estrogen positive, we want it to be HER2 negative. I'm like, okay. So um, I go have the MRI about four days later, I get a call from him and he said, um, you know, I, I wanted to let you know that um, it's, it's a little more than what we thought. He goes, um, you actually have two very large tumors in your breast. Wow. And, um, and he said in that pathology that we were waiting to come back, um, you know how we said we wanted the ER and PR to be positive and uh, the HER2 to be negative, um, your HER2 came back positive. So you are going to have to have chemotherapy. So, um, you know, fast forward, I'm, I'm going through chemotherapy. And, and, and one of the challenges for me is um, I'm a, a staff carrier. So I have had multiple staff infections um, that I've been hospitalized for. Oh. And, you know, I would, I would share with all my doctors I need to be pretreated. I need to be pretreated. I need to be pretreated. And, um, and for people listening, what does that mean exactly? So when when you have um, when you've had a previous staph infection, that staph continues to reside in your body. And so one way to avoid a serious infection is to have like seven days of pre-antibiotics, and then to treat the site with an additional. Uh, antibiotic on your skin so that none of none of that uh, staff gets into your bloodstream. Right. That makes sense. The challenge is, and you know, my background is I came from medicine. I spent 20 years in um, medicine as a surgical technician. And um, I guess what was so frustrating is to have the doctors think I was crazy. So I would tell them, you know, I'm a staff carrier, please pretreat. And they would always say the same thing. We're going to give you plenty of antibiotics during surgery and plenty of antibiotics afterwards. Don't worry about it. <sighs> and so um, I had my I had my port put in on Wednesday and I had my first chemotherapy on Thursday. And so um, as as most people know, you go back about a week later and you have your blood work done. And the day before that, I started feeling crappy and I'm like, oh, okay. So this is what chemotherapy is like. And I just kept getting crappier and crappier. And, and then I started running a fever. And um, so I, I went in for my blood work and the nurse opened up my shirt to get to the port. And she's like, oh my God. And it was all red and inflamed. And um, I went, I looked at it and I went, okay. 
I know what's going yeah. on. And she goes, your port is infected. And I said, you know, I don't think so. And she goes, no, no, your port's infected. So uh, long story short, they sent me home with uh, very expensive antibiotics that I promptly couldn't keep down. Oh, gosh. And the next day I was in such bad shape. I went back to get fluids. I went back to get um, IV antibiotics. They weren't using my port. They were doing it in my arm, which is difficult. And I was there the whole day. And eventually, um, <laughs> well, I'll go back to every time somebody would come by, they're like, your port's infected. I said, no, it's not. I have a staph infection. They're like, no. I'm like, I have a staph infection. 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 No, you don't. So uh, by the end of the day where I had puked in every garbage can and every bathroom in the facility, um, they had contacted my health insurance to get me some antibiotics. And my portion was going to be $4,000. Oh, my and God. I, I said, you know, it really doesn't do me any good to take a $4,000 antibiotic because I'm not going to be able to keep it down. Right. And they're like, well, you know, we can't get you any home health care because your insurance won't pay for it. Uh, and I finally looked at him. I said, admit me. That's right. That's the solution. That'll take care of everything. Yeah, that's the solution. And they're like, well, we just don't admit people, blah, blah, <laughs> oh, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, I was just so annoying to them. And and the, the oncologist even said, I don't even know what to admit you for. I said, admit me for cellulitis. Just leave it at that. Get me in the hospital. Right. I immediately get into the hospital. Uh, one of the first doctors that came was the doctor, the infectious disease doctor that treated my original staph infection. And he's like, at, at exactly the same time, the both of us looked at each other and went, I know you. And so that, that was a big chuckle, but that was my beginning of chemotherapy was, um, so you didn't get that spent... second round. Oh yeah, I did. I did. That day. Um, so I was on a, no, yeah. so I was on a 21 day cycle. And so um, I spent 10 days in the hospital with that and then got home and was finally, and then I had, um, you know, 30 days of IV antibiotics at home with a care nurse. And uh, just in time, you know, I started to feel a little bit better just in time for the, the second chemotherapy. And um, unfortunately, I ended up in the hospital two more times with staff when, um, when they put my expanders in um, and when I had my mastectomy and then passed my cancer treatment, I, I, w I was, uh, very clear that I had breast implant illness. Um, I, I am grateful to say that, uh, I am friends with the woman and her group that actually took breast implant illness to the FDA that they are now instrumental in having put the, the black box warning on, on implants. And so um, my implants were making me so sick. And you know, for me, my belief, especially with my background and, and the research that I do, if, if a plastic surgeon is not asking you if you'd had chemotherapy, radiation, or an autoimmune disorder, you need a different plastic surgeon. And so I ended up with a staph infection again when they they took my implants out. So um, yeah, it was it was an interesting journey 
through that whole time, I was also caregiving my mom and, and my two, I call them adult toddlers. And, uh, you know, I never skipped a beat, but I'll tell you what, there were days and I, and I'm sorry, I feel like I'm kind of all over the place, but I think there's something that as cancer patients, we do, that is a huge disservice. And there's a lot of times that, you know, here we are bald or we've got a cute little scarf on and we're smiling, you know, after having just puked up the bottoms of our feet. (laughs) And, and I think that that's really a disservice to uh, cancer patients that follow us in our footsteps because it's not, it's not accurate. It's not accurate. And, you know, there were that last cycle. um, It's the first time I've ever thought of giving up. Uh, I I don't have a lot of quit in me, but I looked at my husband and I said, I just don't think I can do this anymore. I just don't think I can do it. So, and, and granted, everybody responds differently to chemotherapy. I like to say that we're all a clinical trial of one because we're all going to respond differently, but I still believe that we need to be uh, authentic about what we're going through so that the people that do follow in our footsteps recognize that this, we don't get into the comparison thing. Well, when she was going through chemotherapy, she was hiking and blah, blah, blah. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. We need to be better about that. Okay. So I want to back up and I want you to help people understand because it's such an interesting sequence and I've heard it before, but it's so, like you said, it's different for everyone. How come chemotherapy before you had surgery? And, and then, and then I'll ask the next, next question. <laughs> sure. So, you know, there's, there's different theories and it really depends on, uh, um, I've learned it really depends on where somebody was trained. So East coast chemotherapy can be far different than West coast chemotherapy. Um, so that was interesting. I had no idea. I, I thought there was just a little manual and they said, right. well, if they guidelines. Do this, this is what they get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was surprising. Um, but my understanding is that they like to see if the chemotherapy is effective in shrinking before. Yeah, yes. So is it actually working before they remove the, the dreaded tumors? Uh, or as I say, before they remove your breasticles. So um, it, it, it is definitely a philosophy that I, I believe in, Um, you know, and as, as I do more research about liquid biopsies and assays on, you know, uh, technologies that are becoming more available, I think it's important, especially in this day and age when there's so much technology around it, I think it's important that cancer patients have the opportunity to have their tumor assay done so that they can figure out whether the chemotherapy works for them or not. I agree. I think it's it's a huge disservice that that is not standard of care. It pisses me (laughs) off. Pisses me off. I agree with you, but most people can't afford that. I know. I know. Yeah. Mine was $4,000. Yeah. That's, that's what about. Right. So how many rounds of chemo did you have? And then talk to us about the mastectomy and the original decision to get breast implants. So I had six courses of chemotherapy and then uh, an additional six months of um, Herceptin, 
and uh, all you know, prior that's, to that's surgery. Very, all prior to surgery, yes. And then um, I also had. Let me think about that. I had radiation before. Yeah, I think I had. Let me think about that. No, I had radiation after the mastectomy. So, um, what was the other question? Why did you initially decide to get breast implants? Because um, people make different decisions, but I've heard so many women say that the worst part were those expanders and how painful that was. Oh my God, the worst. And I was stuck with them for um, nine months. It was awful. It was awful. Um, The reason why I decided to get implants, um, first of all, they push you so hard. I mean, my very first appointment with the oncologist was who's your plastic surgeon? And I'm like, what? What? Yeah. I mean, I was just trying to deal with the fact that I just heard that I was going to get chemotherapy, which I was sure I was not going to get. And then they're asking me who my plastic surgeon was. So that's interesting. And that I'm not the only person that 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 occurs. But that is not always Um, the thing that happens either. That's bizarre. So they they just made the assumption. I think they do make the assumption. The other thing for me was um, I was quite well endowed and I couldn't picture myself going from a a D, almost double D to nothing. I just, I just couldn't picture that. And I had spent a great deal of time talking with the plastic surgeon about the safety of them. You know, oh, they're the most investigated medical device ever and blah, 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 which is, which is total bullshit, you know, given that, uh, uh, it's now known that the FDA hid about 400,000 adverse events around implants. Um, you know, so it, is that I all implants? Gonna... I'm just curious for people cause silicone was banned for a long time and then they brought that back. So it's, yeah, it's, it's all in really? okay. Um, you know, it has to do with, um, I call it outgassing, but has to do with our body's response to plastic silicone, the ingredients inside them in our body. Um, and I, I was very clear that the majority in my experience at that time, again, that was seven years ago, I was very clear that most women had implants. Got it. And so um, if I could go back and redo it, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. It cost me dearly um, financially because I ended up in the hospital twice. And um, physically, um, you know, my, my chest wall is so scarred down that it makes it difficult mobility wise. It constantly is uh, dislocating a shoulder. So if I could do it again, I, I would do something way different. Wow. So did you get a bilateral mastectomy? I did. So that was one of those things I was unsure of. And again, on the first meeting with my oncologist, I said, um, you know, I'm, I'm struggling. Should I just do, um, one breast? Should I do both? I'm just, you know, I, and, and again, you know, those first 30 days, 
you're kind of just floating around going, they've made a mistake somewhere. They, this is somebody else. So you're just, you're so overwhelmed. And so I said to him, I said, you know, I just am unsure whether to go ahead and have a double mastectomy or just do the one. And he said, you know, let me um, help you with that. I'm like, great. And he said, um, first of all, you have a very aggressive cancer. Uh, I was stage three. I had 11 hot lymph nodes. Um, stage three, grade three, about as close as you could get to not being stage four. Right. And um, he said, you know, you're young, which was surprising to me. I didn't think that um, 52 was young for breast cancer, but it is. And uh, he said, and there isn't going to be a plastic surgeon who is good enough that he's going to be able to match the fact that you have, as I kiddingly say, a 40 long and, um, <laughs> you know, and then you're going to have this new perky thing. So, um, and he said, and here's the other thing. Um, you have an incredible family history of breast cancer. He goes, I, I think prophylactically it's the right thing to do. Got it. And I have no regrets for having done that. Just the, the not having to worry about that as much and to never have to do another mammogram. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's always lots of fun. So tell us after you got the implants, so, so probably what, a good year after your diagnosis, you got the implants? Am I timing that out right? Yeah, so I was, I was diagnosed in August of 2014 and I had the implants, I had the mastectomy in January of 15. And then the implant surgery was then, at the time that they did the mastectomy, they put the expanders in. I didn't have those changed out until the end of, of 2015. Okay. And initially, after you got the implants, were you happy with them? Did you have trouble right away? What happened? Um, it, it felt so unnatural to me. It felt one, I was always cold. My chest was always cold. Wow. Um, but they were like two hard balls on my chest. Mm. There was just, there, there was, it, it just felt wrong. Um, and you know, when I, when I got the second staph infection with uh, the expanders and I ended up having the drains in for almost six weeks. Oh, gosh, that's a long time. I finally said, you know what? This is enough. Take them out. Take them out. I'm done. And then the plastic surgeon convinced me otherwise. Oh, no. And so I should have listened to my gut then, and I didn't. Oh, no. Um, so, yeah. So how much yeah. longer? Um, that was probably another four weeks. Um, yeah, it, it was not fun. It was not fun. And... Um, Certainly in, in retrospect, I wish I'd have listened to my gut. Yeah, so your body was telling you. people, if, if, if your body's telling you something, try to listen. Unfortunately, I'm one of those that it usually takes like a baseball bat for me to get the message. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it, uh, 
I'm, I'm getting better about that. So, how so I, I had the implants in, um, probably a year. And one of the things is, you know, they tell you it really takes about a year for recovery from chemotherapy and radiation. And, and it was like, why am I feeling worse? Mm. So my, my two biggest complaints was, uh, were, uh, vertigo. I just suddenly started having vertigo all the time. And, um, if I had to drive somewhere, I would automatically add 20 minutes because I might have to pull over and sleep. No. Yes. I was so fatigued, even worse than the chemotherapy, even worse. I ended up with radiation pneumonitis, um, post radiation. And, uh, that was a fun journey all on its own, but that was exhausting. And this was a, this was an everyday thing. And so, you know, I was, I was taking care of people. And if we had a doctor's appointment, I would have to add 20 minutes on each end of it just to make sure that I could get there and home. So yeah, it was very frustrating. And it was at that point, I don't even remember what it was that I, I heard breast implant illness. So being the research geek that I am, I go on Dr. Google and, you know, investigated breast implant illness, you know, what is it? And I think there's, there may be net more now, but at that time, I think there were 42 different side effects from it. And I'm like, Oh, got that one. Got that one. Got that one. Nope. Got that one. Got that. It, it immediately just all made sense to me. There's an organization and people can Google it. I'm sorry that I don't have it right in front of me, but, um, there, are a group of advocates that are just amazing. They literally just were at the um, plastic surgeon conference talking about breast implant illness. And um, you can find the groups online. Um, there's plenty of uh, Facebook groups to get involved. And if, if people wanna, you know, again, talk to Dr. Google, you can go in there and look at it. You know, I think the sad part is, or the frustrating part is that, um, so much of the symptoms resemble recovery from cancer, you know, the fatigue, the, I mean, there's just so much. So most surgeons just say, oh, you know, you just haven't recovered yet. And yeah, they, they just want to diminish it. And I think that we'll see eventually uh, a possibility of, of, they already know that people that present with an autoimmune disorder prior to having breast implants in are far more susceptible to it. But even my own new plastic surgeon, um, you know, I, I pressured him pretty hard to make sure that he asked, does a patient have chemotherapy? Have they had radiation? or do they have a known autoimmune disorder? And if they say yes to any of those three things that they are are then educated about breast implant illness, and actually that's become through this advocacy of my friend, that's become a law as of January 1st in the state of Arizona. Eventually they're pushing for it to be uh, through the entire nation. But um, in Arizona, 
people have to be told about breast implant illness prior to getting implants. And so, so you plastic know, I surgeons pushing, are mandated now. They have to do it. In the state of Arizona. Wow. Yes. And so, um, you know, I pushed him really hard because I do have a, a good relationship with him. And he actually changed his intake forms to address those three questions. And then, you know, uh, after that, it's entirely up to the patient sure. whether they want to get implants or not. But it, to me, that is an informed consent. And uh, in this day and age of a lot of non-informed uh, consent that has gone on over these last two years, I think it's imperative. Yeah, I agree. Wow, good for you. That's a that's yeah. amazing. Not surprising because I know you, but <laughs> amazing nevertheless. So, tell me, Anne, what was your worst moment during that time? Hmm. Um. Certainly after the, the sixth cycle of chemo, I mean, I was just done. I was just done. I, I was so sick. Um, you know, my body didn't like chemotherapy at all. Um, you know, I did not breeze through it. It was not easy, but I have to say, you know, the staph infections, um, for people that have never experienced a staph infection, staph infections are typically more painful than the original injury or surgery. And um, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, um, you know, and, and then I was pretty hard on myself that I, in my opinion, let myself get pushed into that without advocating harder. Um, pushed into because if they would have just pretreated me. Oh, pretreated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, no. Yeah. Yeah. The pretreatment. You pushed you know, though. It sounded like you did push. I, I did, but not hard enough, right. but not hard enough. And, um, you know, I, I think we all know our bodies the best. And in, from this point forward, because, um, you know, I have a, a genetic disorder called Ehlers-Danlos and it's a collagen issue. And so uh, my joints dislocate and sublux all the time. Just rolling over in bed will dislocate a shoulder. Wow. And I've had nine joint surgeries because of subluxation and dislocations. And every single one of them that I was pretreated for, I breezed through. Right. So to have... And, and maybe because it's ortho guys, they understand that Ehlers-Danlos is a problem. Um, and so they really listened to me. And it's it's sad to me that all physicians can't come from that, that they can't say, this person knows their body and I'm going to listen to them. I know. I mean, it costs them nothing. I know. It costs them nothing to pretreat me. Well, you know, and yet it costs me tens of thousands of dollars to be in the hospital. Yeah. So I think the staph infections and, you know, how hard I beat myself up about uh, not advocating as much as I could have possibly have done um, from this point forward. You, <laughs> you can't do that to me again. You can't do that to me again. And, you know, I think you know, and this is just for everybody, you know, the expense of cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that time, 30% of the people that had health insurance had to file for bankruptcy. 
you know, at that time, my kids were in college and I was stressing over paying for their college and, you know, recognizing that I was going to be spending a lot of money to keep myself alive. Um, I, I literally sat my family down when I was diagnosed and I said, I am not going to have treatment. And I had asked the oncologist, I said, given my diagnosis and, and uh, the advanced stage of, of my cancer, if I did nothing, what will happen? And he said, um, I would give you a 15% chance of being here next year. And so I sat my family down and I said, um, I'm not going to have therapy. Uh, you guys are in college. Um, I want to get you through college. I'm not going to do it. And I have a really, um, robust life insurance policy. So I'm not, I'm not going to have therapy. I'm better off dead than alive. Oh, and of course they didn't listen to me. <laughs> Thank um, God. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's, you know, I, I don't think I'm the only one that feels that way. Oh, you know, oh, you're and, not. and that's part of, you know, the healthcare system that's broken. Yeah. I, um, I know a young woman, she's now, I think, 11-year cholangiocarcinoma survivor, bile duct cancer, very rare type of liver cancer for those who don't know. And she did, she's from Montana, still lives there, and she did two years of useless, that, those are her words, chemotherapy. And they said she could continue, but she did a cost analysis. And she and her husband together have six children. They're all pretty close age range. And oh some of them, I think three of the girls were already in college. I think the youngest was 12. And she was like, I can't keep doing this. And she was worried. They looked like they were going to have to file for bankruptcy. It was kind of the, the same thinking. I'm better off dead than I am alive. And then they said, no, we have to figure something else out. And it was she and her husband, not any of her doctors, that found the clinical trial that saved her life at NCI. Isn't that amazing? And that that's something that, um, you know, it took me a while to, to figure out, you know, based upon the research and, and the innovators that I interview, you know, um, clinical trials were, I bought, you know, and that's the thing about not knowing what you don't know. Yeah. I thought those were only for people who were end stage and there was no hope. There are clinical trials out there that in, are incredibly amazing. So if people are in that situation, um, if there are clinical trials available that you can fit into, absolutely go for it. Yeah. First of all, they pay for all your care, you know, so that's amazing. But what it does is it advances um, those therapeutics for the people that follow in our footsteps, yeah. which is really for me, that's kind of my life purpose. Um, I didn't plan on it, but uh, that's kind of my life purpose is hoping to make those that follow in our footsteps. And it doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman, um, whatever kind of cancer it is, it's by participating in those clinical trials that will help to further treatment. Yeah. And if we don't do that, then that doesn't happen. So, um, and, and what's nice about the clinical trials is they keep such a close eye on it. Absolutely. You know, you usually get very so, good care. Yeah. You really almost always get better care than if you hadn't. So 
for people that have no idea, investigate if there's a clinical trial. Um, you, you just have to typically, I think there's a website, clinicaltrials.org. .gov, yeah. Dot gov. Oh, that's right. That's right. So um, yeah, I would I would invite people to investigate whether they can qualify for a clinical trial. Okay. I asked you about your worst moment. What was your best moment? Oh my gosh. Um, so my daughter was at in New York at one of the most prestigious um, schools called the Pratt Institute. And she was studying fashion. My son was uh, at ASU and he was studying um, engineering. And so they were both in very rigorous programs. And I, when I agreed to therapy, I said to them, I want you to know that I don't want it to be anything that takes away from what you guys are doing. And so, my birthday was coming up and um, my daughter's name is Landry. She's named after the former coach of the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> and um, she was in New York and, and she had had let me know that, um, you know, she was going to wish me a happy birthday from afar. And so it was probably about six o'clock at night on the day of my birthday my, uh, I kind of called her my cancer mentor. Um, she had had breast cancer 18 years before me. And so she showed up at the house, which I thought was unusual, although we were very close friends. Um, she did some amazing things for me over the course of, of my lifetime. She and my husband worked together for about 25 years. And so that, that didn't surprise me. And she and I were sitting there chatting and, you know, you know, all of a sudden the back door opens and my daughter walks in. Oh, I was just flattened. It was like, oh, my, my brain couldn't just couldn't calibrate that she had just walked in the door. And then all of a sudden, um, my son asked me to come outside because he wanted to show me something. And when I came back in, there were all these cards and letters and presents on the table. And what she had done from New York is reached out to all of my friends and told them she wanted to plan a surprise party for me, but I don't like surprises. Um, one of the things I tell people is, um, you know, I'm spontaneous as long as I have a couple weeks to plan for it. And so, <laughs> <Like me. laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, don't surprise me. Don't, don't no. surprise me. And so um, she wrote this unbelievable email to all these people and that the best surprise would, for me, would be letters and cards so that it would be something that I could refer back to. And it was spectacular. It was spectacular. And then we went out to dinner, which I promptly threw up in the bathroom at the restaurant. <laughs> and then when we got home and then we put her on a plane and sent her home. Wow. She wasn't even here 24 hours. It was amazing. It was amazing. She was there for your birthday. Yeah. Pretty spectacular. That is a great story. Oh, isn't that awesome? Yeah. It's, it's really beautiful. And what is one thing? I may know the answer, but I'm not sure. 
What is one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning of your cancer journey? I wish I had known how hard survivorship is. I don't think that we are prepared for how hard survivorship is. I didn't, I was unaware of the anxiety that I would feel with each scan, each appointment. Um, I wasn't aware that, you know, every little bump lump tick to me would be like, oh my God, I've got earlobe cancer, you know, oh my God, I got toe cancer. You know, every little thing is frightening. Yeah. And I don't think that we do enough to let people know that that's a challenge. And, and maybe it's just me because I don't ever ask for help, but I don't think that we're told enough that this is 95% of the people that go through this, go through this. Yeah. And so I don't think we're encouraged to um, seek support and therapy as, as much as we should be. I hear that a lot. You are not alone. Yeah. So I'm really excited to ask you this next question because I feel like you've already done it, but I know you're going to do so much more. If you could only change one thing in healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? Um, cost and availability. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very clear that there's a lot of money spent on R&D, um, but... I believe it goes even further back. I believe that part of the reason our healthcare is so expensive is because there aren't tort reforms. And what that means is that in the United States, this is the only country that's like this, in the United States, if you decide that you think your doctor didn't treat you well, you can sue them for whatever amount of money you want. Yeah. And so having come from a practice where I was a surgical assistant, it cost $60,000 a year to cover me for liability insurance in the practice. Wow. And so, you know, people, physicians and hospitals are practicing defensive medicine and it's costly. And so then you can, then you can add to that. It's just like a big, um, snowball rolling down the hill, the cost of pharmaceuticals, um, you know, the, the, the margins in there for a lot of companies are huge. That's one of those things that uh, when I look at new innovations, I want to know what are they thinking that this therapy is going to cost a patient. Right. And that's a big deciding factor for me is, is it going to be affordable to everybody, not just in the United States and not just in developed countries, but across the globe. And so that's a really, really important thing to me. I wish I had an answer of how to change the healthcare system. I, I just, I, I think it has to start with tort reform. Um, and I think if that could be changed, then, then I think we would see a big difference. The problem is, is, is a, I don't think healthcare is ever gonna get cheaper because um, there's a lot of acceptance that this is how expensive it should be and, and, you know, understand, and I know you do, but understand hospitals are for profit. Oh yeah. It's about a bottom line, yeah. period, 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 period. 
And um, now that we're already used to paying so much for our health insurance and so used to paying so much for our pharmaceuticals, they're not going to unring that bell. You know, there's no going back to 1980. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's, that's heartbreaking. Um, and which is why I look at technologies that are affordable, that, uh, increase access to care. You know, there's a big, a big disparity, um, around the country, um, depending on the color of your skin and access to care for that. So, yeah, I think it needs to be trying to figure out a way to roll back some of the expense of it and to then make healthcare accessible to everyone. Hmm. I love the answer about tort reform because it's very nuanced, but it could be a step in the right direction. And you're right. I We're agree. the only country that doesn't have it. <laughs> right. Crazy. But here's the problem with it. The people that would pass a bill on that are all lawyers. <laughs> and so they're not going to um, pass something that would be disruptive to their income. And, and that's that's the sad part. Yeah. All right. On that very happy note, are you ready yeah. for the Thriver Rapid Fire questions? Oh, God. I'm not good at these things. <laughs> Beach, desert, or mountains? All three. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Beach Boys. Oh, me too. What is one word that best describes you? Well, if we eliminate crazy, um, catalyst. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Oh my gosh, hallelujah. And what's the last meal you want to eat? Oh my gosh, uh, crab legs with filet mignon. It's really funny how people get tripped up on the last song, but last meal, everyone knows, like they know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. We've all thought about it. Um, the last person or people you want to see? My family, my husband, my kids. Yeah. And the last words you will speak? I told you I was sick. <laughs> okay, that's in my top three. <laughs> oh. Aside from Cancer U, what's one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And please tell people how they can get in touch with you. I have been told that my book is one of the most useful tools that a cancer patient has, has utilized. Um, it was written specifically for people that have no medical background. If you don't read my story in there, you can read um, the entire thing in about six hours. Uh, I am working on recording that, so that'll be great. Um, but to, to give people an idea, the very first chapter is on understanding your insurance. There is such, people have no idea when you are out of network in insurance, um, you're responsible for 100%. So if you call a doctor's office and say, do you accept my insurance? They're going to say, yes, we do. But if you call and say, are you contracted with my insurance? That could be the difference of you paying $4,000 or paying nothing. And so the very first chapter is understanding your insurance. And so it really is um, just a, a, 
a good resource to basically understand what the journey might be like. So say the name of your book again and tell people how they can find it. It is on Amazon. It is holy crap. I have cancer. Now what? What to expect when you weren't expecting? Um, again, it's on Amazon. We are working on a recording of that. So eventually it'll be uh, a Kindle um, or Audible, hopefully. And uh, anybody who wants to reach out to me, my email is Ann, A-N-N, don't put an E on there that doesn't say anything, <laughs> Ann at cancerfund.com. Okay, awesome. So we will put a link to your book on Amazon and your email. And thank you for coming on and sharing your story. It's been so awesome. Well, thank you for having me. And you have no idea how much I appreciate you and totally appreciate and respect what you're up to. Um, it just, it's, yeah, we're, we're, we're kindred spirits. We are. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.